Hello and welcome. This is Ramon Guarini, your host at Tu Voz Hoy podcast, a show where I, along with my qualified experts, will introduce comprehensive solutions to the most critical issues in our society. Enjoy the show. Welcome everybody. Today I'm bringing you the current crisis of Venezuela. We'll find out whether the U.S. sanctions have contributed to restore democracy or to worsen the situation in the sovereign American country. Let me just mention that this episode is a newer version of one of my projects that I did when I was in college. And so all the personalities that you will hear on this episode belong to the Fair Use Doctrine established under Section 107 of the Copyright Act, especially when it comes to newsworthy. So let's begin. As we all know, Venezuela is one of the world leading oil producers on earth. The economic downfall and political situation in the South America country began since the late President Hugo Chavez. When Chavez took power in 1999, one of his priorities was to end poverty. In order to achieve his goal, Chavez will need to restore the oil industry under Venezuela's PDVSA, better known as PDVSA, the state-owned oil and natural gas firm. Former advisor to Hugo Chavez, Eva Gollinger, told Chavez to get those profits back into the country as soon as possible. Chavez began to say, we need to eradicate this poverty in our country, and the way to do it is by gaining control of our oil industry and making sure those profits are going back into our country. But Chavez knew that it was not going to be that easy, and challenges will arrive in order to implement social reforms to get back Venezuela's natural resources under the power of the state. And so the very first thing that Chavez did was to fire up all PDVSA executives because they were somehow hired by these foreign companies that were exploiting the oil industry of Venezuela. And fired the entire board of directors. In a report from The Guardian back then, Hugo Chavez insisted that Venezuela doesn't need of which he called imperialistic institutions dominated by the U.S. government, so Chavez got rid of them all, including ConocoPhillips, ExxonMobil, Chevron Corporation, United Kingdom BP, Norway State Oil, and France Total SA, among others. Because of that, Venezuela's financial situation increased and so its people's wealth. More public services available. Poverty statistics decrease while salaries increase. Chavez put his people's interests first. Nonetheless, the South American country became in a huge turn oil. People from the left and right had different ideas in regards to Chavez's oil industry decisions. And so they took the streets to protest respectfully, as Central University of Venezuela professor Margarita Lopez Maya explains. It was an opposition rally. I was moving in the hundreds of thousands towards the palace in order to ask Chavez to resign. But the palace was surrounded by backers of Hugo Chavez that were going to resist this rally. People that were on buildings shooting. We don't know who they were. Several civilians fell dead of both sides. 
Chavez ordered the armed forces to stop the people, but they refused to do that, claiming that the current manifestation was a political issue and not a national emergency. And so right there is when the coup started, when the National Army turned their back on Chavez. Former Associated Press correspondent Hannah Dreyer and who lived three years in Venezuela proved that the increase of oil prices, economic reforms from the government, and the revolution led by Hugo Chavez contributed to the coup in Venezuela. What most economists will tell you is that Starting with the revolution launched by Hugo Chavez, the government started making economic mistakes, basically. And by the time I got down there in 2014, there were a lot of economic distortions and currency and price distortions. A lot of companies had been nationalized and weren't working well. And all of that was kind of covered up because the price of oil was surging and Venezuela gets almost all of its money from oil. So it's like you couldn't see how bad things were going. But then at the end of 2014, there was this huge oil crash and the price of oil dropped from $100 a barrel down to maybe 30 And suddenly you could see that things were falling apart. And the economy just kind of continued to spiral downward from there and hasn't recovered. The same theory comes from Patrick Beth David, a successful entrepreneur who studied a career in financial business. He explained how Venezuela went down from one of the richest countries in Latin America to the poorest. Maduro got elected in 2014. Chavez died in 2013. So when Maduro first got elected, Venezuela was still kind of okay. They had some problems, but they were kind of okay. Why were they kind of okay? Because oil prices were still high. The moment oil prices drop more than 50%, they can no longer fund all the public programs because 50% of Venezuela's GDP is what pays for all the free public programs that Chavez came up with years ago. When Chavez got elected, oil prices 1935 per barrel. During his reign, it went from 1935 to $97. And they are the number one leaders in the world in oil reserve. So he could give all these free programs away while oil prices were going up, which means what? Venezuela's economy is controlled by oil prices per barrel. They go up, it could work. It goes down, catastrophe all over Venezuela. So what happened when oil prices kept going up? More free programs. Housing, this, let me give the land away. Let me take the land from the rich. Let's give it to the poor. Let's take this away. Let's give that away. Let's give everything away. If the economy increases inflation 50% a month consecutively, eventually it becomes hyperinflation. 50% a month. This is what it means. That means what costs a dollar today on January 1st, 12 months later on December 31st, whatever costs a dollar, now costs $130. That's hyperinflation. As we understood, when oil prices go up, social programs are affected. But even worse, if sanctions are placed in a form of vengeance, like the U.S. government did so by making difficult for Venezuela to refine oil, as Kim Iverson, a broadcast journalist who studied at the University of California, Davis, explains. 
So what we started to do was we started to make it very difficult for them to actually tap into their oil resource. We made it very difficult for them to refine it and get the infrastructure that they need in order to do this. That's how we started implementing the sanctions. We started to try to bankrupt them by squeezing them. You and your oil, uh, it's going to be worthless because you're not playing ball the way that we want you to. We want to still control you. We want to have the relationship with you that we have with Saudi Arabia at minimum, or we want our big companies to come in and be able to make a ton of money off of it, which is what they were doing, and we don't like that you kick them out. We will eventually lose this battle. This is a long road to losing, is what this is. We need to change this system. We cannot continue in this way that we've been going on. We will collapse. It will be devastating. It might not happen today. Trump might be able to push it off. Obama was able to push it off. You know, they're all able to push it off with the regime change wars and trying to control the situation through force. In addition to that, we bring Elio Abram, a neoconservative lawyer who served in foreign relations under Ronald Reagan, George W. Bush, and so he was nominated also by former President Trump's CIA director, Mike Pompeo, as a special envoy to Venezuela to supposedly restore democracy down there. Elliot's passion for the rights and liberties of all peoples makes him a perfect fit and a valuable and timely addition. Elliot will be a true asset to our mission to help the Venezuelan people fully restore democracy and prosperity to their country. Elio Abram is known by being the main head of mass massacres in Nicaragua and El Salvador, as well as a failed coup against the former president of Venezuela, Hugo Chavez, in 2002. He also pleads guilty to withholding important information about Iran-Contra affairs from Congress, but the late president George W. Bush pardoned him for his crimes. Alan Nairn, an American journalist and two-time prize winner of the George Paul Kawar, has more on Elio Abrams. Abrams was the key man in Reagan administration policy towards Central America when uh, that administration was abetting uh, what a court recently ruled was a genocide in Guatemala, when the U.S. was backing uh, the army of El Salvador in a series of death squad assassinations uh, and, and massacres. And when the U.S. was invading uh, Nicaragua with a Contra force, the problem is that that U.S. policy has been to abet genocide when the U.S. Uh, feels it's necessary. In the case of Guatemala, uh, the Abrams and the Reagan administration uh, were approving the, uh, the shipment of weapons, uh, money, uh, intelligence and the provision of political cover to the army of Guatemala as they were sweeping through the northwest Mayan highlands, wiping out 662 rural villages by the army's uh, own count, uh, decapitating children, crucifying people, uh, using the tactics that in, in this era we associate with uh, ISIS. In the case of El Salvador, uh, after the uh, massacre in El Mozote, where a U.S.-trained battalion uh, massacred more than uh, 500 civilians, uh, slitting the throats of children along the way, uh, Abrams took the lead in uh, denying that such a thing uh, had ever happened, and he later uh, described 
the uh, results of the Reagan administration policy, his policy in El Salvador, as a fabulous achievement. So this is Elliot Abrams, who has now been put in, in charge of uh, key aspects of the U.S. policy toward Venezuela. Representative Ivan Omar, Democrat from Minnesota, also confronted Abram in a House hearing about his position with current Venezuela crisis, but he refused to give clear answers. Mr. Adams, yes or no, would you support an armed faction within Venezuela that engages in war crimes, crimes against humanity or genocide, if you believe they were serving U.S. interest, as you did in Guatemala, El Salvador, and Nicaragua? I am not going to respond to that question. I'm sorry. I don't think this entire line of questioning is meant to be real questions, and so I will not reply. Whether you, under your watch, a genocide will take place, and you will look the other way because American interests were being upheld, is a fair question. Because the American people want to know that anytime we engage a country, that we think about what our actions could be and how we believe our values are being fathered. That is my question. Will you make sure that human rights are not violated and that we uphold international and human rights? I suppose there is a question in there, and the answer is that the entire thrust of American policy in Venezuela is to support the Venezuelan people's effort to restore democracy to their country. That's our policy. I don't think anybody disputes that. The question I had for you is that the interest, does the interest of the United States include protecting human rights and include protecting people against genocide? That is always the position of the United States. Thank you. I yield back my time. United Nations human rights expert Idris Yassayri explained to RT News why U.S. sanctions to Venezuela make things harder for civilians. Your contention is that the, that, uh, the EU has committed a uh, unilateral coercive measure in sanctioning Venezuela without a UN Security Council resolution? Of course, all the, those that are applying sanctions on Venezuela should carry out a human impact assessment uh, review to make sure that when they apply these sanctions, they're not making the situation worse for ordinary citizens. Uh, whether it's in Venezuela or whether in Syria, I can't take the argument. We are deciding to apply or to extend our sanctions on country A or B because of the failure of the government to, to ensure proper respect of human rights. By, by applying sanctions, which will deprive people of food, medication, humanitarian supplies, we are, in fact, adding to the, uh, exacerbating the human rights impact that we criticize from uh, the, the, the country targeted. Michelle Bachelet, United Nations Commissioner, said that U.S. sanctions to the South American country aggravate the situation. 
the enjoyment of economic and social rights has continued to deteriorate dramatically since June 2018, that it was the last time that, that there was a report on Venezuela. Vulnerable populations such as children, pregnant women, the elderly, and indigenous people have been particularly affected. Although this pervasive and devastating economic and social crisis began before the imposition of the first economic sanctions in 2017, I am concerned that the recent sanction on financial transfer related to the sale of Venezuelan oil within the United States may contribute to aggravating the economic crisis with possible repercussions on people's basic rights and well-being. I'm also deeply concerned about the shrinking of the democratic space, especially the continued criminalization of peaceful protests and dissent. Greg Wilper, who hosts a real news network show on YouTube, had an interview with co-director of Center for Economic Policy Research, Mark Weisbrot. The American economist stated that blocking oil imports causes devastation in Venezuela because that's where the government gets its money to supply medicine and other services for its people. Now, shouldn't be the Trump administration or Trump administration officials such as Pompeo be held accountable for this, for intentionally pursuing a policy that causes increasing pain and suffering among the general population of a country such as Venezuela? The problem here is, is a lot of it is just the lack of awareness of what the United States is doing to people in, in Venezuela. So yeah, these sanctions are really deadly and they can destroy uh, any economy. Both Wilper and Weisbrot agree that military intervention against Venezuela is just a combination of ignorance and indifference. Uh, people shouldn't be more concerned, especially among Democrats in Congress, about the effects of sanctions uh, on the people of Venezuela. And I'm wondering to what extent is it really ignorance or indifference? That is, you know, the U.S. has a history of imposing sanctions on uh, countries that have been very devastating. I mean, thinking particularly the sanctions against Iraq before the Iraq War that uh, are said to have killed 500,000 children. And then now, of course, the sanctions against Iran are also causing great harm and suffering in that country. Yes, I think it's a combination of ignorance and indifference and of course the Florida politics as well. Now, with all this being discussed, both the regime of Venezuela led by Nicolás Maduro with his continuous abuse of power and the U.S. imperialistic sanction as we just heard contributed to the Venezuela scoop. In addition to that, the currency conversion affected the economic of Venezuela as journalist Hannah Dreyer claims. Yeah, I mean, I was getting paid in dollars and it was very strange because because of the currency implosion, I was kind of getting richer as everybody else got poorer. When I got down there, it was kind of a cheap country. But by the time I left, it was like things were almost free. So when I first moved there, I was paying a thousand dollars a month to rent a pretty nice apartment. And by the time I left, my rent was $50 for the same apartment just because of the currency. Nonetheless, in June 2021, Bloomberg News interviewed Nicolás Maduro and asked him how he was going to repair the current economic crisis that is facing the country. Maduro, of course, told the news reporter that he wants the U.S. government to stop the harsh sanctions of which he called extreme irrational politics that were implemented by Donald Trump, of course. Same sanctions that were hardly criticized by the United Nations human rights advocates, whom they said that all of these sanctions not only violate
violates human rights but also kills innocent children because of food insecurity due to the U.S. sanctions being implemented that prohibit meal and medicine companies to supply those goods and services to Venezuela. And so that devastates the lives of the people rather than restoring democracy. In addition to that, the United Nations wants the government of Venezuela to let international poll observers to participate during elections to make sure that the people's voice of Venezuela is being heard, especially when it comes to choose the next president. During the interview with Bloomberg, Maduro also contemplated the opportunity to send a message to Joe Biden and requested him to terminate the Trump era which was based on demonizing the Bolivarian Revolution of Venezuela that include political, commercial, and economic persecution against the South American country. He also urged the Biden administration to stop the despicable Monroe Doctrine of the United States, which have clearly violated its own purposes of protecting the American countries from any type of colonization military intervention, imperialism practices, or invasion coming from European powers. But it was okay for the United States government to use this doctrine in 1846 when they took half of the Mexican territory and no one said anything about it. Thank you for listening to my podcast. Tu voz hoy. I will see you back in my next episode on February 11th.